In this episode, we talk to my best friend, my roommate, my partner in business, and the most brilliant mind that I've ever met. He shares a poem that he wrote last year that can help you see the beauty in death and the urgency that it can create for you to do all the things that you desperately desire to do in this lifetime. We talk about all of the personal development that has shaped who we've become and where we want to go. And we tell some crazy stories about our friendship and the experiences we've had together. And so I'm very excited for you to, to listen in, to learn a little bit more about our friendship, but most excited for you to have your mindset altered, impacted, and in a very positive way because Ian Gabriel, like I said, is and has one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever met. And I can't think of anyone better to represent the gripped brand than my brother, Ian Gabriel. This is Gripped. Ian, yep. welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Round two, baby. Yeah, round two. Let's try to <laughs> try to make this better than the first one. Appreciate you being on the show, man. I'm happy yeah. you're here. This is a long time coming. And I wanted to start off by just letting the audience know a little bit about our relationship, uh, how we've progressed. I know I was thinking about a book that Abdu, our mutual friend, he gave me, and it was called Do You Talk Funny? And the goal of the book was to help you to speak funnier. And yep. one of the exercises was to give, uh, to write down a list of experiences that you've had in your life that were funny. And the prompt was think about people in your life first. So I listed all the people in my life that I've had interesting experiences with. And I put you as number one because we've been friends for a while and we're roommates. And I remember writing out the list of all of the activities and experiences and fun things we've done. And I literally had two full pages before moving on to the next person. And I mean, everything from like rap battles in California at 2 a.m. with no cell phone reception or battery to, you know, traveling the world, going to Belize and Guatemala to looking like idiots on virtually every dance floor we've ever been on and subways slaying. around the world. So, yeah, slaying it. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about, uh, you know, our relationship through an interesting story that you can think of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot that I can think of that first off I can't share. So we will, we will go down the list on other stories. Okay. But for, <laughs> for a little bit of context, Jonathan and I met when I was 18, he was 19 through network marketing. We had a mutual friend who recruited me into the business with Jonathan. Anyway, we became really good friends. We went around to these different business conferences all around North America. We went to North Carolina, Cleveland, Phoenix, Arizona. We went to California. And then the story that I'll share with you is particularly from San Jose, California. Okay. So we got finished on after this, uh, after the event one night and we're suited up. I'm wearing a three piece suit and we get home or sorry, we get onto the subway to go home. Now just, I start being an idiot and being myself as always, um, dancing around, <laughs> rapping on the subway. And what I'm about to say is definitely, I, I, I think is very, very important. So as you can see, Jonathan and I are clearly very, very white. 
Um, and then these high school students, these young black guys, they, 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 they were loving the rap. We started all hanging out, started talking on the, on the subway. They were, they were really laughing at the rapping. And then they said, what are you guys doing tonight? And we're like, oh, we're just going to go home. What are you doing? They said, we're going to this party. You should come. And, and Jonathan, for, for those, no. Jonathan, Jonathan said, absolutely not. So Jonathan's clearly broken out of his shell a bit, obviously still doing this podcast. He's very like work, work, work in terms of structure and all those kind of things, but he's without a doubt have a more balanced, uh, balanced type of persona than a little bit more rigid of maybe, maybe he used to be. And so at, at this time he said, absolutely not. And I was like, Jonathan, we got to go. And he's it's like, <laughs> like, it's not happening, dude. <laughs> I'm like, Jonathan, you got to trust me on this. I have a feeling this is going to be an interesting experience. It would be a travesty to miss this. Yeah. And then much to his chagrin, very reluctantly, he agreed. We didn't know how far this was. And we, we stay on. We miss our stop. Turns out we're still on this train slash subway for like 45 minutes, an hour, so <laughs> late in the night. It took way longer than it should have. And we get out and we think we're close until we have to walk another 20 minutes in this neighborhood to get to the party. But when we got on the street, we knew there was definitely a party. This place was bumping, probably somewhere between 100 to 200 people in a backyard outside. And yes, very culturally homogenous. Jonathan and I stuck out like sore thumbs. And I don't say that as like, we noticed that i'm saying it was noticed i'm not exaggerating people were coming up to us and taking photos of us like we were some sort of circus freak that happened to to be there for the amusement of the party <laughs> and, I, and i so it's the middle of california california uh san jose summer very hot as i said i'm wearing a three-piece suit so i take off my jacket I take off my undershirt and i leave the vest so i look like i'm this male stripper that has arrived and and the people were really like, what is going on? Why are they here? We were looking really, really out of place. But nonetheless, we had a good time. We started talking to people. And I started talking to this guy, and we started talking about rapping. And then he agreed to have a rap battle with me. So what they did is they shut off the music. They got everyone around in a huge circle. And we faced off one-on-one -on -one freestyle rap battle. Now, uh, I, I don't, I, I did say, <laughs> I can't, can't share with you. It's a little vulgar of what I said. Share the line. I'm not, I won't share the line, but what I will say is that it, it was picture like an eight mile setting where set up huge punchline place goes absolutely berserk. People are jumping around, yeah. people jumping around, going crazy. And it, it, it was hilarious. It was very fun. It was very civil. We had a good time. And then we, you know, we hung out for a bit more, danced around, had a good time. And eventually, you know, we left. It's time to go home at least 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning. We go back to the train station, or the bus stop, subway, whatever it was, and it was closed. So we're like, how are we going to get home? We don't have cell reception. We don't have anything. We don't even – we literally don't know where we are. And then we see a police car. We run to him. I chase him down, flag him down, go and explain to him the situation. He calls his sergeant. And then he lets us hop in the backseat of the cruiser at 2.33 in the morning. And he drives us at like double the speed limit across San Jose, really far back to our hotel. And uh, <laughs> that was the night. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you, you sharing that. I think that gives some insight into the type of relationship we have. And I think that's like one of hundreds of stories that we could have got into. But I will 
just express my gratitude for putting me in that position, uh, being so so encouraging and, and really not allowing me to get out of that because I would have went back to the hotel and I would have went to sleep and had a good night's sleep and then woke up the next day and totally missed out on what was an incredible memory that we both share. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know if you would have got that in a million years if you could have fucking believed it. No, I could have I could have relived this a wouldn't happened so. yeah but and, and to, to be fair though i would say on a flip side you've definitely you know reeled in me in certain ways and productive healthy ways to do certain things better as well so definitely a nice symbiotic relationship two-way street two-way street baby. yeah and we'll we'll get into my side of the street right now because we'll jump into the the, the weeds here on the podcast. My goal for us and the intention today is to share with the listeners some insight on philosophy, on mental health, about being unapologetically yourself. And there's nobody better to do those things than you. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit more about the mental health side. You told us, uh, our Toastmasters group, about six or eight months ago, a story about your youth and about some trauma that you experienced in your life. And I'd love to give the listeners some context on that so they get to know you better, but then also talk about how to deal with that, how to manage it, and then how to make it work in your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the story in which Jonathan's alluding to, it was when I was five or six years old, my parents got divorced, not a big deal. I didn't even know what was going on at the time. But my brother, who's two years older than me, lived with my mom and my, my dad moved away. Now. I remember, you remember vivid details in, in certain moments of your life. And I remember I was sitting down, I was watching YTV, and I got a phone call from my dad. And you can probably think to a time when you're on the phone with someone where they were talking to you, but you're preoccupied. Yep. You weren't really listening and you're pretending. And it went something along the lines of, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so that was what happened. I, I don't remember a single word he said. I remember watching my TV and I remember the next day I went to school, had a really good day, went to daycare. My brother and I had a really good time. I remember making fake IDs, drawing in the portraits, drawing in all the details. And then my mom shows up to pick us up. Our grandparents are with her, which was weird. And we asked her why. She said, I'll tell you after dinner. So we went home. There's these teddy bears there. We're like, what are those for? She said, I'll tell you after dinner. And then after dinner, she sits us down and I'll never forget this. There's two small couches facing each other. I'm sitting down on the left side of one, my mom to my right. My brother is across from me. Our grandparents are to his left and to my right. And then my mom said that she had to tell us something. And then the words she said, I will literally never forget to the day I die. And she just paused for a moment and she said, Daddy went to heaven. And I remember this just inexplicable without there's no way to articulate the, the just like electricity, the, the, sh the paralyzing chill that went up my spine. And I was quite literally just stunned in the place. I didn't I didn't say anything. I didn't cry. I was just literally I literally sat there completely frozen being like, this can't be happening to me. This can't be happening. And yet it was. And then, I, as I said, I was very composed despite being I'm seven years old at the time and I'm just sitting there. And I, and I, and I, and I asked what happened. And she said, it, it was a terrible train accident. 
and then um, it was about a couple weeks later, uh, she sits my brother and I down again after dinner at the dinner table this time, and she said, I have to tell you something. And you know, at this point, I thought this meant someone died because I had just been on the phone with my dad and the next day he died. So at this point, I was like, is it granny? And she said, no. And she said, it's about your dad. She said, I told you that it was a terrible train accident, but it wasn't an accident. He, he jumped in front of a train. And then at that moment, I realized that the day before my dad willingly, willingly walked in front of a train to end his life, that I had been on the phone with him and I had ignored him. And interestingly enough, I think, you know, there's moments in life where you can have like a paradigm, paradigm broken, where you have some sort of understanding about the world, um, you have some sort of understanding about the world and it gets proven wrong and you have to kind of fit your reality to that, to that new reality and that new truth. And up until that point, I think, you know, you think you're invincible and you think you hear about horrible things happening, but it's not going to happen to you. It's other people, it's other things. Yeah. And at that, and I had that paradigm, not only broken, but just completely, completely obliterated, shattered, like with into absolute shambles to the point where I had to just completely reorient myself on this new foundation, foundational understanding of reality where, wow, this can actually happen to me. Now, with that being said, you know, you, you started off, you introduced this story talking about trauma. Now, without a doubt, and I think I'll get to it, there's some huge, uh, it had huge effects on me and probably I didn't realize until later years, but at the time, I genuinely not covering it up, not holding in the emotions. I wasn't traumatized. I really wasn't. I remember explicitly on being on the street, hanging out with friends the next day uh, and just like keeping on, keeping on. Obviously, it's not that I wasn't sad. It wasn't that I didn't grieve, but ultimately it wasn't like I was holding this burden on to me going around day by day and bitter or something like that. Um, and I think, yeah, just from that age, I think, you know, I, I think that as well as understanding that things can happen to me or that, that I wouldn't think would, but I think also in part, you know, I, I think I've worked towards being a more empathetic and compassionate person and, and sensitive, et cetera. But that being said, I also don't, I don't really have too much sympathy for what I would personally consider oversensitivity. So I'm not like, I'm anyone can get offended. I'm not one to get easily offended. I'm not one to take things uh, personally. Now I'm sure there's some genetics and conditions and other factors involved, but I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that had some sort of shaping of that that now reality. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing, and I think I'll address this first and foremost. I know you may not see it this way, but sharing a story like that and having that level of vulnerability can be very challenging for some people, and giving the listeners that insight into your life is really meaningful and impactful because now we can see, well, things happen and things will happen. And, you know, one day, most important person in my life, my dad's going to die and I'm going to have to choose how I'm going to look at that and how I'm going to respond. And so I'm wondering for you, you know, I don't want to create theoretical situations, but if you were yeah. older, do you think it would impact you differently or is it something about the way that you decided to look at it 
that had impacted how you responded? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to experience trauma or have experienced trauma. I know that, you know, there's a, a, f- a mutual friend in our life that went through something yeah. very similar recently and he responded in the most inspiring and uh, beautiful way of bringing his family together and, you know, doing his best to, to take what he learned from that experience with his, with his dad and bring it forward. So I'm wondering, do you have any insight you can share into the mindset that you need in order to compartmentalize that and maybe even use it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think first off, you know, you're talking about, is there a conscious thought? I don't think there was much conscious intentionality to what I was doing at the time. I think just, I was a bundle of circumstances and genetics and that was the output to those inputs at that, at that period of time. Now, that being said, as I said, I kept on keeping on. I was so stoic. I was overly affected, but uh, not in any type of burdensome way anyway. But I, yeah, no, I definitely think, I think, I think it would be much, much harder, much harder later in life. Like I think about, um, you know, thinking about friends and family now in my life, if something like that out of the blue happened, I think, I think it would be much more difficult. I think it was almost like uh, too stupid to know, even though, you know, having the, the thoughts about, you know, this can't happen to me and all that kind of conscious thought. At the end of the day, I was still so young. Um, whereas, yeah, I think if it, now it'd be a lot worse. But I think it's important to realize that when it comes to grief, everyone's different. Mm-hmm. You know, and that grieving period is something that has to happen. I would say, um, I would say the worst thing that you can do is resist it. I think you need to let it run its course, whether that's, you know, crying or hugging, talking to friends, all those kind of things. I know that, you know, things that definitely she shouldn't do are isolate yourself and not, you know, not talk to other people. I think, you know, you brought up being able to tell that story, the, you know, being sharing vulnerability. I would say we have this misconception that vulnerability is weakness. I think being able to share vulnerability is such a strength I agree. because once you take the first step, like the step of faith, so to speak, to share it with someone you're so nervous, not only do you get the, you know, the sympathetic ear and not, the, not any negativity that you think, but then when you are vulnerable, vulnerable with people, in turn, they will likely be vulnerable with, with you. And then once you've had enough conversations where you've taken the first step of vulnerability and had that reciprocity of vulnerability back, you will very clearly realize that you are not alone. Every, everyone is going through something. Everyone's had something happen to them. Everything will have something happen to them. I think this just popped in my head now. I read a book who, on a guy who also does a podcast that we like, Sam Harris. And he, yes. in, in a book called The End of Faith, he was being asked, and he was responding to the implied question of how do you be moral without some sort of divine, divine understanding of reality? And he said, picture this. This is paraphrasing, obviously, I haven't read this in years, but he said, picture this, you you know, you see someone walking down the street, you see someone to be mean to you. Everyone they know and love in this world will die. And they're going to have to go through that. And you are too. The least you can do in the meantime is be kind. So, yeah, so... And, and, and just going back to the point, like everyone's going to experience this. And then once you realize that you're not alone, then you don't have to be in this state of like literally the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But what I will say in terms of grief and about tragedy is that 
it, it, I think one of the things that I've uh, talked to our mutual friend about this, and I've talked to some other people, you know, the past years that have resonated with what I'm about to say, but I had a friend in high school that, that died after when I was a couple of years later in university. And I remember being in a lecture hall, people laughing and talking and getting the news and just sitting there and everything else was kind of going on. And I think we have this misconception because we learn about things through media and movies, for example. And I would say there is a huge difference between how death is portrayed in a movie where it's an artistic interpretation as opposed to real life. And what I mean by this is when someone dies, when something horrible happens in a movie, it's raining, there's yep. music, yep. the world exists to stand still for this moment mm -hmm. because that's what it's portraying the individual's feelings in real life. But in real life, those feelings to some extent are happening internally, but what you'll recognize is that everything kind of just keeps on going. Yep. And on one hand, you're like, you know, something that's so horrible to you, people that outside of your inner circle, that it affects you, you know, they're going to be there for you and they're going to be sad, but then you know what, they're going to, they're not going to miss, they're not going to not go to work. You know, they're not going to yeah. miss the party. They're going to go on the date. They're going to go to bed. And then part of you and be like, Oh, why don't they understand that, that kind of thing. But it's like, well, that, horrible things are happening to people in your life all the time and unless yeah. it directly affects you it's not going to directly affect you yeah. unless you know obviously you're going to be there for your close friends but outside of that inner circle it's not really that front of mind and i think that is kind of one of those isolating feelings when you know you're not surrounded by the people that it's affecting you're just around other people and then there's that, that kind of that contrast so i would i think the most important thing is i think we need to be around be there for the other people that it's directly affecting you need to you know be there for them and I, but i would say the number one mistake i see in those situations on the flip side of it just destroying them and it and not worried a bit not being worried about helping anyone else but where they put off their own grieving in the attempt to help others and i think you need to find a balance between being there for the people in your life you know when you're grieving too for the other people that are grieving but then also allowing yourself the time to grieve yeah, I appreciate you you getting into to grieving in, in very in very depth and detail. One thing I want to use, and I'm going to go off script here because sure. it's it's synergistic with what we were talking about, flipping this and talking about death in a very practical way, yeah. almost using it as motivation. I know you know there's the memento mori, remember that you're going to die. I remember you passing me a book a couple of years ago by Seneca on the shortness of life, and one of the quotes was, "We act immortal." And all we that act, we desire, we like mortals, and all that we fear, and like immortals, and all that we desire. So yeah, how you, to forget our own mortality. Um, yeah, can you repeat that one more time for everyone that's listening? So if they want to write that down and think about it a little bit deeper, and then how you're using things like, I know I'm going to die one day. I know people in my life are going to die one day. How do you actually use that practically? So what he says is, you are living as if you were destined to live forever. Your own frailty never occurs to you. You uh, waste it as though you had a full and overflowing supply. Although every day you devote it to somebody or something, it's squandering away, yada, yada. And then it says, you act like immortals in all that you fear. And like, sorry, repeating again, it's that important. You act like mortals in all that you fear and like immortals in all that you desire. So to unpack that, 
You act like mortals in all that you fear. So everything that you're worried about, I gotta pay the bill, I gotta find someone so I don't be forever alone, I gotta do all these things that are so important, I gotta do this and go this and that, work, all those things, you're worried that it's, I got, I'm gonna die, I have to do this. But in anything that you want, anything that you desire, you act like you're gonna be immortal. So you know, you wanna go travel the world, you wanna go, do you want to start a podcast you want to learn guitar you want to go do anything that you want to do any dream that you have you're like ah i'll get to it one day so and then he kind of summarized it after he said you know how foolish to forget our own mortality and i think when you talk about this with a lot of people so it's from the book seneca on the shortness of life life is long if you know how to use it actually written a couple thousand years ago bc and one of the first, you know, objections when people hear stuff like this, they're like, it's so negative. It's so sad. You're thinking about death, but it's not negative. It's not negative at all. It's actually extremely positive because when you recognize that it's going to end, it, then it creates this natural urgency to go do those things. Because if you don't, then you're going to act like you're immortal in all the things that you want to do. Hence, you will not do them because you will die before you have the chance. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I had a lot more questions before I was going to ask you this, but it's like the perfect segue. And so I'm going to ask you a couple, no, more than a couple months ago was last year. I remember you were in High Park and you told me a story about <laughs> being in High Park and writing something down almost as if you had to get it out of you. And every word that you wrote yeah. in your journal was a release. Yeah. And can you tell us what you wrote in that journal? I think it is a perfect segue for what you were just talking about. Yeah, so for sure. So I, w I was in High Park, and as he said, I, f I felt like I physically had to write this. We're not going to get into the details. There'll be a time when I go into a little bit more public transparency about maybe this. Five years. Let's just, maybe in, maybe a couple of years, but let's just say I was in a focused mental state. <laughs> so it was actually right after I was done crying, if that gives any hints. Um, ironically, all my best writing <laughs> happens right after I cried. Um, but I was thinking about my friends and my family and I started crying and then I felt like I physically had to write. And then this is what I wrote. <sighs> We're all going to die. All these sounds, memories, connections, feelings will all fade, but ultimately crushed, ruined, obliterated to an abyss of nothingness, never to be seen again. Like a single rock thrown into the water, never to be considered again. There was eternity before the throw, an eternity after, and only by chance did the rock get to be thrown at all. The time the rock moves through the air and drops in the water is but an instant. That's all the time there really is. So how best to spend that time? The answer to that question is best answered on a foundation of understanding the finite nature of that time and to create from that an urgency to do the things you would desperately do before the rock crashes, splashes into eternal nothingness. So how do you do this without fear and impending doom? Well, first off, get that at the beginning and make sure that it's real. Because when you truly understand, when you truly conceptualize that there is a finite time left available to you, it should instantly click 
stress, worry, overthinking, and prolonged suffering would be to waste and squander that time. It's like having the epiphany that the plane you're on can't land, that it has to crash. The doors are sealed, there's no escape. Surely you will cry when you first find this out. But then, not despite this realization, but in spite of this realization, you will laugh and dance with all your body can muster. The people around you in this bittersweet embrace, this love until the impending destruction comes and overwhelms it all. It's this sense of ending which unites us toward common aims. If life were to go on forever, there would be no urgency. It's this urgency that we share. It's this urgency that creates meaning. It's this urgency that says, I know all of this is going to end soon. But I want to share part of this finite time that I have left with you. And I'm happy to share that with you, Jonathan. You too, man. Love you, bro. Love you too, bro. I think people need some time to digest that. And I'll encourage the listeners to go back, listen to it again. We may be able to just clip that so that people can just keep listening to that over and over because it's worth re-listening to. I know I, I must have heard it maybe a hundred times. I'm still, I'm still getting chills. I'm still tearing up. I, I tell every person that asks me about you, and everyone that, that knows you well already knows this, that you have one of the most brilliant minds of anyone that I know. And so whatever... Whatever you decide to do, man, whatever dreams you have, I want, I want you to just keep using that, keep spreading love. So I bet people are wondering like, wow, that's pretty amazing. How the hell did he get to this place? And so I'd like to backtrack a little bit. We talked about your experience with your dad. Um, I remember some stories about, you know, we had some fun times in your residence in Aurelia, some, yeah. specific, some specific ones that I, I don't want to but there was one, there was one time where you were on the cusp of making a really important decision. And both of us at the time were very turned on to Jim Rohn, where we were listening to a lot of his content. Yeah. Uh, amazing, you know, one of the foremost thinkers in business philosophy. He's made a huge impact on both our lives. And he has a quote that helped you make a call where you were at, you were living in Aurelia, yep. in school for police foundations. And then you made a call to do something different and completely changed the course of your life. And so what was that quote? And then what ended up happening? Yeah, so I lived in Aurelia, which is, so for the context of the significance of this, I was in Aurelia, I was in a university program in police studies at Georgian College through Laurentian in Aurelia, 30,000 person town, aka not the place you want to be for your nope. college experience. And I, nope. knew, I knew on day one when my mom dropped me off, I was like, I made a mistake. But I didn't do anything about it. And... I went the whole first year and I let it by and I didn't do anything about it. 
And then it was about halfway through my second year at this place that I knew from the beginning that I didn't want to be and I let it slide and I procrastinated that luckily I was listening to, to Jim Rohn, uh, which, you know, Jonathan actually introduced me, which is, you know, this is the flip side of the, the, the symbiotic relationship that we alluded to. And he said something that was just so, inc- so just like, huh, of course. And he said, talking about something along the lines of if you don't like what you're doing change it if you don't like who you're around change it if you don't like your present address change it you can change it you're not a tree (laughs) and if you're if you're wondering why jonathan's smiling there he's not doing the role of a cheesy podcast host to like uh to sub to laugh at whatever i say like go watch jim Rohn. he speaks with a certain tonality that's quite humorous and compelling anyway and I, i realized i was like I got to stop deluding myself. I don't want to become, I do not want to be a police officer anymore. So I wanted to transfer. And what I did is I went out, it was a very annoying, arduous process, but I got it done and I changed it. And I, and I transferred to Guelph, which was quite easily one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And uh, very happy to have made it. Yeah. So for, for those, of, for those people that are listening to this and they're like, wow, I'm, I'm, you know, it's cool that he was able to make a call like that because really it did alter the direction of your life. I mean, you wouldn't be likely in Toronto living as roommates with me working at fix. If you didn't make that call, I remember a story from, you know, back in our network marketing days where they would talk about a dog that was sitting on the porch and uh, yes. beside this old man. And every day this dog would be moaning and groaning and in pain and just pouting and, this traveler would walk by on his way home from work every single day and they would hear the dog moaning and one day decided to stop. And he asked the owner, he said, why is your dog always moaning and groaning? And the owner said, well, he's sitting on a nail. And then he said, well, why doesn't he just get up? And he says, because it hurts enough to complain about it, but it doesn't hurt enough to do anything about it. And the moral of the story was until the pain of staying the same becomes greater then the pain of change, you'll never change. So I'm wondering for those that are listening that maybe you're in a place where they're not as happy as they could be. They've identified an area of their life either where they want something different, they want something new, they want to get rid of maybe an addiction, a habit, something that's not making them happy. How can they actually take that step and change? Yeah, so I was actually thinking about this recently and I was thinking literally just today, unrelated to this, I was thinking about how Exactly that quote, until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of changing, you'll never change. Now, the visceral reaction when you hear that, can still be part of it, is to really feel the pain and the discomfort of what you're currently adding and use that as a motivation factor. Because we know, evolutionarily speaking, the fear of loss is a lot stronger than the pain of gain. Yes. Or, sorry, than the, than the, than the, the pain, sorry, evolutionary standpoint, it is a lot more compelling to motivate someone by the fear of loss than the, than the potential of gain. Potential of gain than the yeah. potential of gain. Now, often, you know, in that, so the, the reaction would be like, feel the pain, feel it so much that you want to do something about it. I'm not saying don't do that if it doesn't work for you. I'm not saying that isn't part of the equation. But I think as someone who, that, that's the evolutionary, that is the unconscious visceral reaction. Give yourself more credit to be motivated what, by, by what can be good. So it's not everything has to be this colossal, huge, momentous problem where it's like, I have to do this. It's like, would you be happier doing something else? Do you want to be happier? Then just go ahead and do it. 
I think Nike had it right. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Just do it, folks. Yeah. I want to talk about having a no problem attitude. Because it's a context shift that I've needed to make recently where I've identified if I had it earlier in my life, I would have done some things differently. I would have overcome adversity faster. I would have been able to bounce back quicker. And so, you know, earlier on this year, you were reading a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And it was, you know, all all things are small stuff. And so I'm wondering, you know, even recently, uh, Eckhart Tolle, I've been reading The Power of Now, which you had asked, you had recommended to me, which is making a big difference in my life. You talked about you know, all problems being illusions of the mind. And so I'm wondering for you, how are you currently thinking about problems in your life? And how can we, how can we start thinking of them in a more practical? Uh, practical? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the book that he's talking about, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and It's All Small Stuff, which I think just that the title alone is beneficial. But I was walking through High Park with my mom. And then I was walking, walking home and then the serendipity of life, there was some books out to be given away on the side of the road. And I actually picked up that book, which I'd heard about before. And then I had it for a bit and I started reading it. And one of them, one of them is, and it's broken into up into two or three page chapters, different rules about life. And one of them is life is not an emergency. So in terms of the problems that you're facing, we often, we're in this state of just like this emergency. It has to be done. This, that, oh my God, it's so scary. I got to do this. And you put off whether, whether you consciously make this decision or subconsciously, you decide I will be happy once I have this to-do list completed. But here's the thing. It's never going to be completed. So if you say that I will be happy once the to-do list is completed, you have just resigned or we have just resigned our fate to never being happy. And that's not what we want. And ultimately, the challenges and the things that we face, once you realize how much time they are in your day, I got to do this and things didn't work out and I got to figure out this. And you realize everything you want and everything you do all day is a bunch of problems and issues. And if you start thinking of that as like the enemy, then your whole life is going to be this emergency. Your whole life is going to be this battle and this friction and this tension and this pain and this unease that none of it that you want. So you, you, it, the, the, that is be, it needs to be reframed because that is not the things in the way of your life. That is not the thing that once you get out of the way, then you can start living. No, that is your life. We're here. That's it. We're here right now. Like this yeah. is your life. And it, once, you, once you not accept that, yeah, I know that. No, once you resonate with that, then you can just be way more happy and way more, way more vibrant. And this is actually something that it was, I was also just thinking about recently. So what it reminds me of is, Jonathan, I know you know this video, but there's this famous video. Some of you, you know, if you're listening to a podcast like this, you've probably, you've probably heard of it, but it's the, your life in jelly beans. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he, he takes the average amount of life and it represents each day of the average person's life by a jelly bean. It's like however many, thousand, 10 or 20,000 or what, however many it is, and he puts them out and then he carves it out and he said, this portion is for commute. This portion is for bathing. This portion is for work. This portion is for sleep and all like the tasks. And then he moves those all out of the way. And what's remaining is a small amount left. And he says, this is what's remaining. Enjoy that. And now 
I remember watching this and up until I just thought about this the other day, I completely 100% agreed. And I was like, wow, it re reframes that there's these small amount of moments that we get to live and we need to cherish them when they come. But there's a fundamental flaw and premise that that is all foundationed on. And that is that those areas are not your life. And those are things you have to get to, to the small amount of beings left. Not realizing that when you're with your friends, when you're at work, when you're at the gym, when you are bathing, when you're doing all these things, that is your life. Those are not the things to get through to get to your life. Those are your life. And the best example, so, you know, I was thinking, Jonathan asked me to think of a couple stories that we've shared together um, and, you know, that we've shared together. And as we talked about, there's there's truly a lot. And there's a truly a lot in the sense that we had plans and the actual plan that ended up happening was phenomenal and it was the best. Yep. But you know what? Some of the best experiences were not the ones we planned. Obviously the one like San Jose being in a cop car in a rap battle. But other ones like we're we're in um we're in Belize just at the end of October, early November, and we're on this it's a Belize is a three hundred thousand person island or um, country in the Central America. And then off of the coast of that is a 20,000, 25,000 person island called, was it San Jose? No, uh, San, Pedro. San Pedro. San Pedro, off the coast of Belize. And we were there. And previously in our trip, Jonathan hurt his foot and he's, his ankle was messed up and he was on a bike. And we were, <laughs> we went to go get empanadas. We went to go get empanadas from this lady who made them from scratch and they were so good. But as we're on the way, uh, there was a huge, like a colossal- Torrential downpour. Torrential downpour. Like, I mean, like completely, completely soaked. The power went out. Blackout. This was Halloween night. Sorry, just for reference. This was October 31st. Halloween night. And we went to go get these empanadas. Power's out. Flooded everywhere. Can't see anything. But we made our way to the empanada thing empanada stand and in the middle of this torrential downpour in this little hut this lady's continuing to make <laughs> absolutely we were like yo she's still making empanadas. what the hell is going on right now and anyway that was hilarious and and then we went home and i was like it's halloween night i want to go out uh, our other friend had already went to bed he didn't want to go out i was like i want to go out jonathan wasn't really sure and i was like yo it was messed up. It was messed up. He had to get some bike that push around on. Like we're going out. It's Halloween. We found about this. Found out about this hotel. Uh, this Halloween party that was taking place at a uh, at a hostel across Belize. So far away. So far away, and it's in the dark, and there's puddles everywhere. We're soaked, and we we make it all the way there. And I remember we're dancing up a storm. There's some like local Caribbean. Uh, type style music going on and we're dancing up a storm. I'm in the middle of a circle. These people are laughing at me as I'd be a complete idiot. Just so dancing dumb. up. So dumb. Like we have videos. This, <laughs> have is not, like, video. this is not conjecture. Anyway, at one point or another, uh, I, I was running through a warehouse getting chased by dogs and just all this other chaos happened. And then, and that was the party, all these things that we wanted. And then on our way back, I remember we just like we were in it was probably 3:30, 4 in the morning. We were in absolutely zero rush. We had nowhere to be. And we were just slowly sauntering around along. Jonathan's on his on his paddle bike. I'm walking along. We're listening to some music. And and I still have videos of I actually have two videos to two songs. One of the songs was uh, Plug Walk. 
<laughs> Red Rich with Kid, and then there was another one with uh, Lil Pump and Ray Schremmerd and XX Tendency on RIP. And, uh, and I remember we had a couple of videos of that, and I looked back on those videos, and it was like, that was not the experience that we were expecting to remember. That was, in terms of jelly bean terms, that was commuting time. Yeah. But no, that was the life. That was the time. I think the jelly bean analogy goes against everything that Eckhart Tolle believes in in Power of Now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm starting to see that for myself more and more as I go through the book. So for those of you that haven't heard of uh, Eckhart Tolle, haven't, listened, or haven't watched or read Power of Now and haven't listened to Jim Rohn, we highly recommend it. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to wrap the podcast up. I have one last question for you, my friend. I like to give the the guests, the opportunity to share anything that's on your heart. You've got, you've become very passionate today, very high energy. So we really appreciate you sharing some strong opinions. So worried. I I know. I'm like, like, relax. This is my process. Creating. I wasn't wasn't sure if I was going to have to cancel the show after this one, but I'm very happy how it turned out. Uh, I want to give you the floor to share anything that's on your heart. I typically get to direct the flow of the podcast based off the questions that I want to ask and what I think the listeners will get value from, but anything you want to share, a book recommendation, a quote you like, anything that's on your heart, feel free to share and then we'll go ahead and close it off. I would highly recommend go to YouTube, listen to any of the two to four hour seminars by Jim Rohn. I would recommend reading The Power of Now. I think there's a lot of value in that. And then I'll finish off by saying this, clench your jaw. Put your shoulders back, relax. Don't be so tense. I think one of the things I've had in the last six to 12 months, I I recognized and became aware of myself where I'm pretty happy, go lucky, fun, I think, type of person. But you know, sometimes I'll be walking on the subway and someone will cut me off, someone will bump at me, and I'll kinda I'll kind of furrow my brow and be tense and upset and I'll take it personally and I'll just walk by and I'll be have this like look on my face like this like don't make eye contact with anyone it's like weird I'm sure there's sociologists um anthropologists etc psychologists on why we do that but I was like why am I doing this I'm like creating these enemies in my life for no reason I'm taking it personally I'm Right. I'm creating these foes and these tensions and these battles everywhere I walk for absolutely no reason at all. And then I was like, I do not want to live like this anymore. And now if someone bumps me, I just smile. If someone's rude to me, I just laugh. I'll just, I smile. And I, I say hi to strangers and I dance down the streets and people look at me like I have three heads and those kind of things. Um, so what I would say is just like, there's a time to be serious and things are important, but like, don't take yourself too seriously either. And what, what I'll last say is uh, I did, we, Jonathan and I went to Electric Forest <laughs> recently. <laughs> what are you gonna say? <laughs> He's so worried. It was a great time, okay? It was fun. But when I came back, I wrote something else. And again, I, I cried before I wrote it. Um, and it was just kind of me coming up with, me stumbling upon, kind of high level high level conceptual purpose of my life of you know being loving and consciousness um, or being trying to become more loving and more conscious and spread that in the world so I did I actually had a spontaneous video where a friend videotaped that on me I posted on my Instagram I don't care if you follow me I'm not gonna lose my Instagram followers by any stretch of the imagination I have a pretty good follow I'm a pretty good follow 
and I'm humble. Hey, hey. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, but I did post the, I did post that video. It's a couple minutes of what I wrote. So if you liked anything of what I said before, it's pretty much along a similar thread. So if you, yeah, I'd appreciate if you gave that a watch and then if it resonates with you, if you have any points of contention or anything you want to discuss, feel free to message me. I'd be happy to have a conversation. I, I live for these type of conversations. Is it at Ian Gabriel on Instagram? Yeah, it's at Ian Gabriel. I A I M I A I N for those of you that want to know how to spell it. Yeah. My just friend go to the 5M, just go to the five M hustles followers. There you go. Or all the tags in the yes. recent posts. Yeah. My friend, uh, not only my friend, I would say you maybe, you know, two, three years ago became part of our family and you've been a blessing in my life and you're a gift in the life of a lot of other people. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And I appreciate that I get to spend some of this finite time with you because I know we won't always have this opportunity. Yep. Appreciate, appreciate you being on, man. Appreciate you too, bro. This guy's the goat. Going to do some huge things. We got a lot of stuff that we're going to do in our life. Appreciate your part of my life too. Keep listening. Love you all. Bye. Till next time. Till next time, my friend. Until the end. Till the end.